Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 99. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's Laura Reagan, LCSWC, with today's episode. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today is Therapy Chat's second birthday, August 16th, 2017. And on this special day, when I'm celebrating two years of making Therapy Chat, I wanted to say thank you to my producer, Pete, who has really helped me immensely with the workload of bringing this podcast to life. In addition to my wonderful producer, Pete, I also want to thank the guests, the many wonderful guests I've had on Therapy Chat for the past 99 episodes. Not every episode, as you know, has been an interview episode, but I'm extremely grateful to the guests who have given their time to spread their message through this podcast. And I also have a very supportive community of fellow podcasters who I appreciate more than I can say. So you know who you are, but in particular, Lourdes Viado, Nicole Burgess, and Melvin Varghese, you three in particular have been extremely supportive towards me and the whole community that is Healthcasters, which is Melvin Varghese's podcasting course for therapists and healthcare professionals, uh, has been incredibly helpful and supportive to me on this journey of podcasting. You know, sometimes it can be an isolated pursuit and it's hard to make time for it at times, but the community of podcasters has really supported me and held me and kept me going sometimes when it's discouraging or it's hard to find the time to focus on the podcast in addition to my therapy practice and my family and myself. So really it takes a community and I could not have done it without all of you. And all the listeners who have been there, whether this is your first episode or this is, you know, your 99th episode, I'm grateful to you for listening and really couldn't do it without you. And I really want to hear from you for the 100th episode, which is coming up just next week. I would love for you to go to my website, therapychatpodcast.com and leave a message for me using the green button for SpeakPipe. Letting me know who you are, feel free to give or not give your name, where you are, and what you like about Therapy Chat. What's your favorite episode and why do you love it? And I will choose certain messages to be played on the 100th episode, which is 
coming up. It's right around the corner. So this is an opportunity to make your voice heard. I love hearing from you listeners and I hope you will participate. And I'm doing a contest where I will choose three winners randomly from the people who call in and I will send those people a therapy chat mug. If you want to enter, you need to go to my Facebook page for Therapy Chat Podcast and let me know that you you left a message so that I can associate your Facebook name with your the real person who called in and get in touch with you to get your address to mail you the mug. You can also purchase Therapy Chat swag even if you don't want to participate in the contest. I created some to celebrate this big milestone of the second birthday and 100th episode coinciding. Um, We have mugs, t-shirts, and stickers for sale, and there will be a link in the show notes to purchase those. Um, The proceeds of selling the mugs, t-shirts, and stickers go to offset the cost of production of Therapy Chat. So enough about that. It's very exciting that we are at the 99th episode and the second birthday of Therapy Chat. And I don't know if you caught episodes 97 and 98, but we've been counting down the top four most popular episodes. So the fourth, if you missed it, was episode 97. That's my interview with Hillary Jacobs Hendel. The third most popular last week, episode 98, was my interview with Dr. Gabor Mate. And the second most popular episode is the one you're going to hear today. My guest for today's episode, which originally aired earlier this year, is Dr. Leslie Korn. She is a fascinating person. And she's going to talk about the food mood connection. There are so many tidbits of information to take away from this episode. I know that I have re-listened to it multiple times. And I know that I've heard that feedback from other people that they listened and listened again and listened again because there's more information that you pick up. She talks about so many interesting things. You're going to learn about the gut brain. You're going to learn about how nutrition can affect your mood, and how trauma impacts physical health, which is kind of a um, continuation of what Dr. Gabor Mate was talking about in episode 99. So let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Leslie Korn. I guess the last thing I want to tell you about in celebration of Therapy Chat's birthday and 100th episode is that if you don't already know, Therapy Chat has an app. It's in the App Store on iTunes. So right now for Apple only, no Android yet, but based on demand, we may add an Android app. But if you are wishing that you could have a way to keep all your Therapy Chat episodes together in one place and save your favorites and easily share, also get in touch with me and, you know, there, there will be future premium content available through the app, but the app's free. 
So um, you can go to the App Store if you are an Apple user and get the Therapy Chat Podcast app. Hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much for listening. Please call in and tell me why you love Therapy Chat. If you don't want your recording to be played on the 100th episode, just let me know. I typically do not include your messages when you call in on the air, but because this is a special episode, I'm inviting you to make your voice heard, talk about what you like about Therapy Chat, and your recording may be selected to air on the 100th episode, and you may win a mug. Thanks so much for your support. My guest today is Dr. Leslie Korn, who is a psychotherapist and has her master's in public health. And she's, she has many acronyms after her name, but she's an integrative medicine expert and traumatologist. And she has been in practice for four decades to be exact. And She lives and works in Mexico, where she is certified as a nutritional therapy practitioner. She does polarity therapy. She's a therapeutic massage and body worker. And she's educated at Harvard. Dr. Leslie Korn is such an interesting person who has done so much. And when you listen to her talking, you'll understand why I'm saying this. She can explain this complex work she does so clearly and make it so interesting and applicable to clinical practice as well as everyday people who are interested in how nutrition relates to mental health. Dr. Leslie Korn is the author of the book, Nutrition Essentials for Mental Health, A Complete Guide to the Food-Mood Connection, which I found and love and has really changed the way I look at my practice and she's also the author of Rhythms of Recovery, Trauma, Nature, and the Body and the Multicultural Counseling Workbook and Preventing and Treating Diabetes Naturally the Native Way. I think you're going to be really fascinated to hear what Dr. Korn has to say about how she got started doing body-oriented psychotherapy, what she's learned from her years in the jungle, and how nutrition can help our mental health. She discusses the connection between trauma and physical and mental health, which I was hanging on every word for that part of it, self-care, and she talks about what is the right diet for everyone. She explains that fat is actually our friend, which is really counter to what we've been hearing for 30 years. She explains that clinicians can use the science and the art of nutrition to help clients and that the gut is our second brain. You've heard me talk about the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study and I know that childhood trauma affects physical and mental health over the lifespan, but Dr. Korn gives us a clear connection that explains why that is and how it works. Any survivor of childhood trauma who's listening will surely feel empowered to understand this connection from listening to her clear explanation. She talks about 
pharmaceuticals du jour and diagnoses du jour and how the food mood connection could be in direct conflict with traditional Western ideas about medicine and health. She talks about the role of the gallbladder and how social justice fits in with physical and mental health, blood sugar, and much more. So I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm just going to be quiet so you can listen to my interview with Dr. Leslie Korn. This is part of the Integrative Mental Health series, and I'm very excited to share this interview with you. So please let me know your feedback. You can comment on my Facebook page, on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Hello, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I'm very excited to have a special guest with me all the way from Mexico who is super knowledgeable about the connection between mental health and nutrition. So I want to welcome my guest today, Leslie Korn. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. You've been doing this research for years and years and years and um, I recently came upon your work through your book, your most recent book, Nutrition Essentials for Mental Health. Um, but can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and your work? I'd be happy to. I am actually, as you say, speaking with you from Mexico, where I've spent most of my career living and working first in the jungle and now in the city. And it was really my initial foray into the jungle that introduced me into what I would call natural medicine for mental and physical health. And uh, I came here when I was very young. I'm now in my 40th clinical year of practice. Congratulations. And, oh, thank you. It, it feels like yesterday. And... Um, and I really began my work because I got sick with everything there was to get sick with in the jungle. And I'm from urban Boston, and I came out of the feminist 60s and 70s of our bodies, ourselves, and self-care. And I'd had an early exposure to yoga and meditation and acupuncture. And so when I found myself getting sick in the jungle, it was the women healers who I turned to. They were both my friends and uh, became later my colleagues and teachers. And together we collaborated on a health center for several decades. And so it was that first initial exposure to the use of nutrition and herbal medicine uh, that really introduced me to my career path. Hmm. That's so interesting. And what I've noticed recently is that um, the the more traditional ways are really becoming more commonly used now, but we have the research to back it up for the skeptics who say, no, those things are new age practices or, you know, that's just hocus pocus and you know, now there's a, a large body of research that shows that that's not the case. It's kind of catching up. Absolutely. When I began my work, even the word stress was not in our vernacular, if you can believe it or not. Mm. Uh, even mindfulness. When I did my clinical training in community mental health at Harvard 
in Department of Psychiatry, very traditional, or I'd say more conventional. Um, mindfulness was in the closet. That was in the early 80s. And yet it took a group of uh, thoughtful psychologists who were interested in Vipassana to see the value of it. And now we take mindfulness really for granted. It's, it's being incorporated in schools and prisons. So I think that's the nature of this work, that um, really what happens is if something works and it's valuable, then it finds its way into and become integrated into our treatment programs. I, you know, after I spent some time initially in the jungle, my first initial work was as a body worker. I'm trained as a body worker. I trained in polarity therapy and cranial sacral therapy and also massage. And that was really my initial clinical work. And after 10 years of doing that, it became very clear that people had stories to tell. You touch the body, the body is in pain, and out comes the story of what's underneath that pain. And it was that, along with my exposure to nutrition and herbs, that took me into the formal study of psychotherapy. And then I really became a body-oriented psychotherapist. Oh, what a beautiful transformation, just putting all of those pieces together to bring it into your work and be able to really show you know, people how it's all connected. It is all connected, and I think that's one of the most important gifts we can give our clients and our patients, those of us who work in an integrated model, because so many people suffer from seeing a mental health person who knows not about their body and seeing a physical health person who knows not about their mental health. And yet, because it is connected, there's so much to understand about those relationships. If they don't have anyone who's helping them put the pieces of the puzzle together, then they really don't progress in their healing process as well as they might uh, with the integrated model. Yes, and I see so many people who are suffering greatly with mental health because of trauma, as I mentioned to you before, that my focus in my work is with people who have experienced complex trauma, so usually childhood trauma. Um, and people are looking for relief and they seek medication, you know, sometimes which may be needed, but it's so hard to get the medication that really feels like it's making the right difference. And I'm not against medication, but so often people are saying, I want a natural way. And um, so that's one of the things that really intrigued me about your book. Can you talk about how you see the role of nutrition in mental health? Oh, I'd love to. Um, as someone who also, like you, works with complex trauma and Boy, it's hard not to when you're working in the mental health field because so much mental illness has an etiology in traumatic experiences. What I found as I began working with people is that their body hurt, they had physical health problems, and they had emotional health problems. And that just working with them to overcome 
the emotional health and the mental distress wasn't enough. And so for me, the missing piece in their health and, and in their self-care, which, as you know, is really the first stage of recovery from complex trauma, is helping people take better care of themselves, was to help identify what kind of fuel and nutrition they could put into their bodies to support their well-being. And, and I say the word fuel because when I work with clients, I don't really focus on vitamin dosing and um, you know technical information, but I really work with metaphors to help them connect mind and body. And the metaphor I use is that of the car. They have a car that needs fuel. It needs lube, lubrication, like fats for the brain. Uh, it needs its um, gas tank and its oil filter changed, hence detoxification. And every kind of car needs a different kind of fuel. For example, if you ride a Volkswagen, you may need a different fuel source than a Mercedes diesel. And hence, every one of our clients is riding, in essence, their own engine. And some of them uh, may be Inuit from the northern climes who are used to eating whale blubber and very few carbohydrates and lots of fat and some berries during the summer. And that's what their engine needs to really fuel their brain, mind, and body. Or they may be from the tropical regions where they'll thrive on vegetables and fruits and maybe a little bit of animal protein. And so the first step I work with clients is to help them understand what their engine needs because without the proper fuel, their brain, their engine is not going to function and it's going to underlie and, and worsen any kind of effects that arise out of the uh, painful and traumatic experiences they've had. Wow. That's really interesting about the different regions that, you know, people can come from and how their body's physical needs for what is nourishing for them can be different. That's really fascinating. It is. And it puts to rest this question that people ask, what's the right diet? There is no one right diet. And that's one of the essentials that I've written about in my book. There is no one right diet for everyone. Some people are going to be vegetarian and that will feed their engine. And some people are going to be carnivores and then many will be in between with a combination. And one of the things when I'm working with clients is that I work with them to make sure that they're aligned with what those needs are. Because if you get someone who's eating like a vegetarian and they're depressed and anxious, I want to explore, hmm, I wonder if they're not getting exactly the right fuel for who they are. Wow, that's so interesting. And in your book, is that something that people can kind of identify or is that something they really need to be working with you or a nutritionist of some kind or something to figure that out? They can figure it out uh, from within the book. The, 
the uh, basis for this is rooted in science. It's rooted in, and I don't want to get too technical here, but it's rooted in the rate at which we digest and oxidize carbohydrates. Some of us do it faster, some of us do it slower. So some of us need to slow it down a little bit and some of us need to pick it up a little bit. And foods are the fuel that uh, that translates to. So some of us do much better on a high fat diet. And indeed, I think we've come through the last 30 or 40 years of being afraid of fat. And I think our biggest revolution in nutrition now is understanding that fat is not our enemy. Fat is indeed our friend. And one of the first things I do with my clients is I explore the types of fat they're using because some of it is bad for the brain and some of it is medicine for the brain. Therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend therapy notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. You know, it's just such a wonderful example of how the, the whole thing with low fat that was starting when I was a kid in the 80s. I mean, I was born in the 70s, but you really heard about that in the 80s and then um, you know, and then it became these low carb or no carb diets. And there's really so much information out there that's kind of, I think, a twisting of the science and people not knowing where to look for the correct information or just kind of, oh, yeah, I'll just stop eating carbs and then I can lose weight and I'll be healthy. And that doesn't even mean that they would be healthy, even if their their weight decreased. So true. And that's why I wanted to take nutrition out of, or the ideology out of nutrition, because nutrition can be almost like a religion for people. People have their beliefs and they're going to stick to them. And yet this book, I wanted to present the whole picture that would cover a range of needs that people have and and really deconstruct or break down the thinking and what we know about nutrition, not based on belief systems, but based on science, and then for the clinician, the art of applying this with our clients. Yeah, and I want to ask you a little bit later in our discussion about how therapists can use the information in your book and your other books to help clients. But first, I was hoping you could explain, um, I'm so fascinated by this concept of the gut brain. And, you know, we're just starting to hear more about it in, um, like, 
public arenas where it's more commonly discussed, but even then it's not really in depth. So you talk about the gut as the second brain. Can you explain more about that concept? Yes. Actually, Dr. Gershon coined the term the second brain, and I think it's a brilliant term because we've got our first brain in our head uh, that's made up of 70% fat, and we've thought oftentimes that that's where everything takes place. That's where uh, all the chemical reactions take place, but the increasing research over the last many years um, and I'll get back to, remind me to get back to this idea that you raised earlier about traditional or conventional research and traditional knowledge, because I think in many ways we, uh, we're really providing the science for what many cultures have told us for years. And this speaks to, I think, the essence of a healthy gut, which is fermented foods. And we've heard a lot about fermented foods of late. So very Recently, there's been increased discoveries of the role of the gut, our digestive system, as really the powerhouse that makes the neurotransmitters and facilitates the chemical interactions in our first brain. And this speaks to one of the essentials in my book where I say, where there is poor digestion, there is always mental illness. Where there is mental illness, there is always poor digestion. That means that with a poorly functioning digestive system, and it could be anywhere along the way, could be not chewing well and swallowing food whole, it could be gastroesophageal reflux, or uh, it could be ulcers and stomach problems, it could be gallbladder trouble or colitis or chronic constipation, anywhere along the route of digestion where you have trouble, over time that will lead to poor mental health. Why? Think of our gut as our garden. And those of you who garden know that we don't just throw seeds into the ground and say grow. We prepare the soil. We till it. We... we um, move it around, we replenish it with nutrients, uh, hopefully natural uh, fertilizers, and we lay the groundwork for planting the seeds that will grow into beautiful plants for us. Now, this is what our gut does. This is what our intestines and, and both small and large do. We eat fiber. Fiber is called a prebiotic that lays the groundwork. It tills the soil in our gut, in our intestines, in, in the uh, sponge-like atmosphere of our intestinal walls. And it sets the stage for when we take in our natural bacteria that sets the stage for growing the seeds and the fruits and the foods that we eat. Now, any step along the way, that garden can become disrupted. You may not get enough fiber, and you may not be able to replenish your probiotics, as they're called, from yogurt, from kefir, from sauerkraut, from the fermented foods that we find all over the world. Or 
You may have chronic infections and take lots of antibiotics, which kill all your bacteria and then lead to digestive problems. And you don't know why you can't digest. The amazing discoveries of the last 20 years have shown that indeed our neurotransmitters that, that contribute to our mood are made in this garden. They are less so made in the brain than they are in this garden. And especially GABA, our relaxation neurotransmitter, is made in this garden of our gut. So what happens if you don't have this relaxation neurotransmitter being made? You You're may be anxious. anxious. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then we may say as clinicians, I'm going to teach you how to relax. I'm going to teach you breathing. I even may give you a benzodiazepine, but we're not addressing one of the root causes, which is the garden is not growing its neurotransmitters. Here is the role for nutrition in restoring the garden of the gut in order to restore mental well-being. You know, it's just everything you said, I, I just got so excited because that it's so, it makes sense. And it's not, it's not talked about that way that, you know, it puts all the pieces together because I have this, you know, we know that the immune system they say is in the gut, right? Mm -hmm. And then we know that people who have childhood trauma have immune system issues, you know, other chronic pain, bowel issues, like, you know, the whole adverse childhood experiences study. And it, and I've been waiting for people to talk more about with the adverse childhood experiences study, but why, why do these traumatic events shorten people's lifespans? And then you look at what you're talking about and how, you know, the neurotransmitters we know are related to both you know, anxiety and depression, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, it just all fits together so perfectly. It does. And, and Laura, we are so in tune about the adverse childhood events. And I am I, a big um, promoter of the importance, not only of that study and, and the questions it asks, even the movement to get primary care clinicians who are doing a lot of the prescribing Mm -hmm. of these psychotropics, but they're not always asking about histories of trauma. They're, they're just trying to treat a symptom without addressing the cause. And there's no question that chronic exposure to adverse events alters immune function. It alters endocrine function and hormonal function. It totally disrupts circadian rhythm. It causes alterations in stress hormones. All of these affect the capacity to digest. For example, digestion is a function of relaxation. It's a function of parasympathetic uh, dominance, meaning you have to be in a relaxed state for those digestive juices to flow. What if you're chronically anxious due to traumatic exposure? You're not digesting your food, and over time you can't pull out the nutrients you need to nourish the first and second brain. And then over years, 
you then, as you say, you develop colitis or constipation, or then you go after a medicine. Uh, for example, a lot of trauma survivors, we know that 70% of people in chronic pain have histories of complex trauma. Mm -hmm. Then you're taking an NSAID. If you're lucky, you're taking an NSAID and not an opiate. But even NSAIDs, we know, are highly associated with depression, NSAID use. So then you're tearing up your gut and your liver, which further makes it difficult for you to get the nourishment you need. And then you're in a vicious cycle, uh, whether you're dealing with pain or chronic digestive problems. We know, for example, that there's high rates of bariatric surgery among survivors of, of childhood sexual abuse. Bariatric surgery, while it may be a lifesaver for some, really involves cutting out the capacity of the body to absorb nutrients. And we're seeing increasing levels of post-bariatric surgery results resulting in suicide and chronic depression, and then turning to different substances and substance use. So you're absolutely right when you draw these connections between the mind and body post-trauma. Yeah, and you also mentioned um, the uh, relationship between childhood trauma and chronic pain, but there's also, we know, a relationship between substance abuse and childhood trauma as well. Like, you know, many studies have shown that a majority of people who abuse substances have some kind of history of childhood trauma. So, you know, it's all just, it's like, get the trauma taken care of. And, and now we know that, you know, well, you know, and have known for a long time, and I'm learning that, you know, what's going on in the gut is a major component of healing those effects. So that's really powerful. Absolutely. In my first book, Rhythms of Recovery, I address just this issue because as a clinician, you know how challenging it is to help clients make that first step towards self-care. They're often in an acute state of affect dysregulation. It's very hard to control uh, their sense of well-being. They're using substances to self-medicate whether they are psychotropics, whether they are uh, opiates or benzodiazepines or um, alcohol uh, or different kinds of drugs, as well as food. And I think about all of these in the context of dissociation and eating disorders, uh, pain, substance abuse are all kind of a dissociative complex coming out of complex trauma. And then people seek to self-medicate. Why not? They are seeking some kind of help, but they're often, they, they don't often have the options for healthier self-medications than less healthy self-medications. And that's a lot of what I try to talk about in both my books is that people are always going to be regulating their consciousness as as human beings, that's what we do, whether we're ill or not. And so let's do that consciously and let's understand what nature has given us to help us regulate consciousness uh, and including uh, self-regulate our sense of well-being through nutrition 
and through botanicals, through herbal medicine. And I think this takes us back to what you brought up earlier about, well, people think this, some of this is new age, but most medicines do come out of what nature has shown us. Uh, we know, for example, that cannabis uh, targets the endocannabinoid system that's recently been discovered in the brain. We know that hemp targets that system. Hemp oil is a wonderful oil uh, to nourish the brain and for relaxation. And obviously, cannabis has been widely studied and continues to be for helping people with PTSD relax and sleep as an alternative to other medications. I use in my practice a, a, a traditional herb called kava that targets the benzodiazepine receptors, but it is not addictive. It's milder than the benzodiazepines, and it doesn't disrupt the dream states like benzodiazepines too. So a lot of the principles we work with in nutrition and botanical medicine is to say what you're craving is what your mind body says it needs. Now, let's find a healthy substitute for the harsh medication or the harsh drug or the substance that has a lot of negative side effects. And let's inch you towards, along with your counseling and your exercise and your body work and acupuncture, let's help you choose more thoughtfully and more healthfully among what nature's provided for these substitutions to still get the biochemical and affective effect that you so need. Yeah, wow. That And how empowering is that, that it doesn't have to be that you reach for alcohol to, you know, sedate you when you feel overstimulated and instead you can feel less overstimulated. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it takes the shame and the blame out of it. Yeah. So, and, yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just thinking about you mentioning alcohol, and I, I just want to make a link, too, between alcohol and nutrition. Because this is where in mental health we can make such improvement with helping people who are coming off of an alcohol addiction because among the many things that alcohol is, it is an addiction to sugar. Mm. Alcohol converts to sugar in the body. That's the role of the liver. And so is it any wonder that when people are coming off alcohol, they substitute uh, often sugar and coffee, you know, the sweets that are, that are at AA meetings, for example, or the foods that are served in a residential treatment programs that just continue to support that sugar addiction, the mashed potatoes and peas and breads, that continue to support the addiction to sugar that makes it so difficult for someone coming off, off of alcohol to remain sober. And so when I work with people like this, we slowly help them restore their liver with very nourishing bone broths and light protein broths and healthy fats and B vitamins that really help them come off of that sugar addiction as well as they're coming off the alcohol. 
Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. It, it totally makes sense. Like I keep saying it all just fits together so clearly when you explain it the way you do. And thank you for the really clear and understandable way that you're explaining everything we're discussing. So um, you wanted me to remind you to go back to the traditional research and knowledge of the medical, Western medical um, community and how uh, the food mood connection kind of is, it differs from that. Well, um, it, it needn't. And I think we, we are seeing, I think, Food, mood, and nutrition is the current revolution in mental well-being. And I think increasingly we're going to see these connections made. We're seeing, um, we're really seeing a failure of efficacy in psychotropics. Let's face it. Those of us who work with clients see a limited efficacy, and the research demonstrates limited efficacy. So let's remember to question all research that is read and who's paying for it um, and to understand really the role of nature and also the role of thousands of years of ancient knowledge. Because I think if we look to our ancestral traditions, we can learn a lot about healthy nutrition and mental health. Um, and while there is a great deal of good research going on uh, for all of these methods, um, I think, for example, we know that the research that came out of the 50s that suggested that fats and saturated fats caused heart disease was bogus research. And yet that research, which has now been uh, broken down and, and has been found to be completely uh, fallacious, that has driven and continues to drive, uh, for example, the wide, wide use of statins, which is now what I call our drug du jour. <laughs> we have uh, decades where we've got our diagnoses du jour, like ADHD and bipolar. Uh, we now have drugs du jour, you know, Prozac in the 80s, um, and now statin, where... <clears throat> The broad brush is let's put everyone on statins and lower cholesterol because high cholesterol is bad for your health. And yet, that's never been proven. That's not based in science. That comes out of faulty research from the 50s, which many people know not to be true, and yet many people are still disseminating. And yet, what are the effects of too low cholesterol on mental health. We know that low cholesterol is a risk factor for anxiety and suicidality. We know that women with total cholesterol over 200 live longer than those with cholesterol under 200. So I think it behooves us as clinicians and as researchers, as educators, to educate ourselves and also question what we're being told. And I think that I, I think there's a great value in looking to traditional, when I say traditional, I mean traditional cultural knowledge, which has evolved over thousands of years across many cultures. It's, 
I agree with you that there is definitely value there. And it's, it's just, I don't know if it's our culture, but how we dismiss ancient ways as being, um, you know, primitive and un, unscientific when these ways have been, you know, things that have been done for 3000 years and we're like, Oh, guess what? And it does really work. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, it's funny because it sounds so subversive too. You're like question the conventional wisdom and, and, and I agree with everything you're saying. And, and there's no question in my mind that you are very knowledgeable, extremely knowledgeable about this. Um, and, at the same time, it, it just brought up something that I saw in your book where you talked about the intersection of oppression and discrimination and, um, I guess, malnutrition, lack of nutrition, mm -hmm. and how it, it sort of is subversive to say, you know, do what heals your body naturally and, you know, don't listen to the conventional wisdom that you have to take cholesterol medication if your cholesterol is over 200 and things like that. It's just very interesting. Well, you've touched on another aspect that I'm very passionate about is the role of social justice because access to good nutrition is a social justice issue. And we know that poverty is a risk factor for poor mental health. And we know that poverty is also a risk factor for lack of access to good quality nutrition. Do you know that now there's even research looking at diabetes as being higher in poor or urban populations by virtue of exposure to environmental toxins. So diabetes is not just about choice and access of let's say poor quality foods, though I think it's in large part that, along with the growing sedentism, uh, and poor people don't have access to, you know, poor people who are working two or three jobs don't have access to go work out all the time or access to good quality food. So there's a there's another intersection here of our relationship, not just to our own inner garden, but the garden of the earth and what's nourishing us. And we see, for example, very much higher rates of gallbladder surgery among minorities. Mm -hmm. uh, we see high rates among African Americans, among American Indians, and among Hispanic populations. And you ask why? Um, well, I think they're vulnerable. First of all, taking out your gallbladder is like throwing out your garbage pail because it's full. It's generally an unnecessary surgery that gets enacted every day on thousands of people. But the gallbladder has an important function for mental health because it helps emulsify, it helps digest fats. If you can't digest and emulsify fats, just like imagine when you're washing your dishes at the sink and you've had you know, a fatty meal, maybe you've had some fish or or some, or you know, a steak, or you've had butter on some vegetables. You use soap to 
break down that butter on your plate so you get it clean. That's what the gallbladder does when you eat fat. And then it spreads it into your bloodstream and feeds your brain. You don't have a gallbladder. You don't do that as efficiently. And so we've got a very profound connection between nutrition, mental health, and social justice and uh, minority uh, disparities and challenges for access to good quality health care. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm with you on that, too. Now, I was just getting concerned. I was giving you a little too much to digest here, Laura. <laughs> oh, no. I'm thinking about my my dream where food is free. <laughs> oh, I love that. I just feel like, why can't food be free? And then, you know, if you want the fanciest foods, you can pay for them. But the basic foods that are healthy and nutritious, why can't that just be free for everyone? Why should only people who have means be able to get food, you know, it's just, exactly. so that's my, uh, that's how I want to make the world a better place. Let's make food free. <laughs> I love that vision, <laughs> but well, not, we're not talking about like junk food. <laughs> no. And that I think is the first place to start when we're talking about the food mood connection. And when I work with a client who's talking about mood lability, where they've got a, been diagnosed with a mood disorder or their mood labile or they can't seem to manage their mood, it's up and down, I say, all right, before we start diagnosing you uh, with, with a, an illness here, let's look at your blood sugar. Let's look at what you're eating. Are you eating Pop-Tarts for breakfast full of sugar that's going to make your mood zing up and then crash and put you in an irritable, depressed mood two hours later? Are you then uh, having donuts as a snack because you're working and you can't grab something to eat? Are you eating a poor quality sugar-enriched salad dressing over salad that you think you should be eating when really you need a, a good piece of protein midday and then on throughout the day? Are you just feeding your blood sugar a drug that's going to send you up and down all throughout the day? Because until we know that, until we know the effects of your food patterns on your blood glucose, on what we call hypoglycemia, functional hypoglycemia, then we don't really know what's your mood at all. And let's, let's identify the effects of this and let's straighten out your diet and then we'll see exactly whether you are mood disordered because chances are we could get a 25, 50, 75% improvement because then the rest we can deal with with counseling uh, and the and the terrible things that you've gone through and the stress in your life. There's a lot of misdiagnosing that's going on as well, and then a lot of drugging. And it breaks my heart when I see even children on five and six medications. And let's let's link this together with with cultural and traditional food systems, uh, where in in ancient times, I think in ancestral times. Uh, people did have access to food in ways that they don't now. Uh, I, I do a lot of work with tribal communities and indigenous communities throughout the world, particularly in Mexico, in the Pacific Northwest, into Alaska, but also have worked up in the Northeast, where I'm from. 
And prior to colonization, prior to 500 years ago, you did not have ADHD. You did not have depression and you did not have suicide. We now have record rates of these issues along with substance abuse. Now, in part, we're looking at not only complex trauma, but we're looking at historical trauma. But it's linked to a complete alteration of traditional foods and traditional diets. The Inuit, for example, lived very healthfully and very happily, as I mentioned earlier, on high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets and lived quite happily doing so and had no heart disease and no suicide uh, or very, very rare mental illness. But in comes the effects of food and colonization, basically, that brings wheat to a hemisphere where there was no wheat prior or a culture that never ate wheat. Uh, pig, there were no pigs in this Western hemisphere. Cows and cow dairy, um, and, and along with soy, soy protein, which is very dangerous for health. And so you start then, now we're looking at 40, 50 years of USDA shipping these kinds of foods, which again are the wrong foods for the wrong car. It's the wrong fuel for Inuit bodies. And you see an epidemic of mental illness. And we see this in the Pacific Northwest, where I spend part of the year living in the organization that I work with there, the Native organization. We do a lot of work around tribal revitalization of traditional food systems as an avenue to reclaim control over one's physical and mental health. These are peoples who live very healthy, healthfully on salmon, on uh, hunted uh, wild game, uh, berries during the summer, and very high-fat diets. There was no ADHD, depression, and suicidality, substance abuse, which again is at an epidemic level. And so I think that traditional ways do have a way to guide us back to what nature has provided us as fuel for brain one and brain two. Yeah, and I I just, I can't help but notice the message that if we would value each person and each culture and what they know about what's best for themselves instead of being so deficit-based where it's like, you know, oh, people in poverty are more likely to be sick and have mental illness, um, you know, and there's, oh, Native cultures have high rates of suicide and substance abuse as if it's something about them versus what, how they've been stripped of what they had in their own culture, their own ways, their food ways, you know? Yes. And that is the revolution that's going on in, in among Native peoples all over the world. And, and you can see this when you look at Native communities that have been bisected by the border, for example, in Arizona, and then live on the other side in Mexico. They're the same people, but their diets are radically different. 
and their health is radically different as well. Um, and even Health Canada, which is kind of our equivalent to NIH, did a beautiful study looking at an indigenous community up in British Columbia where there were very high rates of diabetes. And you know, too, that there's a lot of depression that goes along with diabetes. Yeah. So it's not just a physical illness. Absolutely. It's depressing uh, being. And, and it always begins with stress. Stress is where it begins. And the stress of being minority makes one more vulnerable in the United States as well. And so it's all interconnected. And so Health Canada said, all right, let's take half the population in this village and let's put them on a traditional diet. Let's go back to eating lots of salmon, lots of game, and lots of high fat and low carbs, because that's what they they ate when they were healthy 100 years ago, 200 years ago. And then let's put the other half on a diet, a conventional diet, that food pyramid diet. And they found miraculous results that the people who returned to their traditional nutrition, sometimes the diabetes even went away, lost a lot of weight, uh, moved into tremendous sense and levels of wellness. And this was a very conventional uh, public health research study. So the work is going on out there to support, I think, what we know, what we already know intrinsically in our work with clients about what works with them. And just as therapists, we believe and support and empower a client to identify what they need for themselves. I believe every client knows what makes them feel best. When I ask them, what do you eat that makes you feel good? And what do you eat that makes you feel badly? We don't need to run complicated lab tests to help a client identify that. And that's why I work with a food diary with them to help them keep track and pay attention to how they feel in response to the substances that they eat. That's beautiful. So I want to ask you two more things. One is how clinicians can use your book to help clients. And then the other is how people can work with you directly, if, if that's possible. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wrote this book for mental health clinicians, knowing that most mental health clinicians are not trained in nutrition, and yet many have a growing interest in it, not only for ourselves and our own well-being, but for our clients. We know some of the basic things. If we have a client who's anxious, we're inclined to ask them, how many cups of coffee are you drinking every day? It's not rocket science mm -hmm. to suggest that maybe one cup is, a, is good. And I always say coffee is a drug. It's not a beverage. So use it like a drug, not a beverage. A cup, two cups in the morning increases dopamine, increases focus. But more than that will make you anxious. And so educating our clients in our psychoeducational tradition, I think, is an easy transition into nutrition. Asking our clients, are you eating three meals a day? Are you eating what kinds of food? Are you eating junk food? Are you eating too much sugar? Some of the basic self-care questions, I think, are the first place to start. 
Uh, they don't require specialized knowledge. Uh, even simple things when I talk about magnesium, I'm not expecting that a mental health clinician will start off suggesting that magnesium supplementation is good for sleep, even though we know it is. But it's a very simple suggestion when we say to a client who's having trouble sleeping, how about taking an Epsom salt bath before bed? It's a very simple intervention that allows the client to absorb magnesium and relax. You're not working outside of your scope of practice to suggest simple self-care home remedies for a client to use. And, and I think this brings me then to the question, a, any mental health clinician that's going to work with nutrition will either choose to work from a psychoeducational model They'll work from a competency model in which they themselves will build their competency, and this book will help them do that. But depending upon the state they live with or, or live in, they will need to identify what their scope of practice is, not only in their profession, but in their state, because the governance of nutritional advice is governed state to state. And there is a Center for Nutrition Advocacy that you can Google and you can see a map of all the states and what they allow and what they don't allow. So I suggest kind of a three-tiered approach. The first tier is knowing what's involved with nutrition and mental health. And my book provides that in a comprehensive way. Then you decide as a clinician, what role do I want to play in this? Do I want to give some gentle, simple, actionable self-care suggestions? And then do I want to build a reputation as someone that will work with clients and nutrition and mental health and identify a nutritional therapy practitioner that I can work with in tandem to help my client? Maybe I'm going to help them stay off psychotropics or get off psychotropics in which case maybe then I'll work with the prescriber. Or am I going to build my competency and develop even another credential and build a, a standalone niche practice to practice mental health nutrition? So the clinician has a lot of options for how she or he wishes to practice. Wow, that's so Again, so clear. Thank you for explaining that. That that I think demystifies when people are listening. They're like, "Well, does this apply to me? Can I use this? Okay, can I use it in my own life? Can I use it to help me with clients? Can I work together with a provider with this understanding?" And you know, I know what I know, and they do their part that's outside of my scope. Yeah, I love it. Exactly. And you know, most nutritional practitioners don't have mental health training. And, uh, and this also goes for naturopaths. There's, I taught mental health in, in, in naturopathic colleges, so I know they get one semester, <laughs> and unless they focus on it, and yet they're very good resources for nutrition and diet and supplementation and alternatives. And so the idea of partnership and group practices or, is a very dynamic idea for, for the mental health clinician. And you mentioned something that I'd like to build on 
I believe that just as we all go through or should go through our own psychotherapy, before we do psychotherapy, we better. So should we try this out for ourselves? We're on our own health path. We're on our own path of recovery from any number of exposures in our own lives. And so first and foremost, we should practice this on ourselves. We should explore this for ourselves because that also not only enhances our health in what can be very stressful, demanding practices and enhance our own well-being and optimize our cognitive function, but it also gives us insight into the challenges of change. And that's why I've incorporated into my chapter nine, my final chapter, how to integrate motivational interviewing into this process, because that helps us bridge that work with our clients. How do we change and what are we ready for? That's the big question, is it not? Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned motivational interviewing because for physicians, I think, especially, um, you know, a lot of us therapists are trained in motivational interviewing or we are aware of the concepts, but a lot of physicians, when they're telling people about the changes they should make for health, they don't know how to use motivational interviewing to let the person from the stage of change they're in, you know, explore and get to where they need to be. Exactly. And, you know, that brings up this issue that change, and we see this in efficacy of group therapy and in in the 12-step programs, that there's a role for us as clinicians to run mind-body groups and mental health nutrition groups that change occurs in the context of community. It's an awful burden we put on people to change individually. That's why the family benefits when the whole family changes. It's not just one person. And that's why clinically there's an opportunity for us not just to treat the individual, but to develop these holistic integrative groups that educate groups of people that can support each other as they're going through these changes. Yeah, and of course, you know, combating isolation and shame is always beneficial to mental wellness. Absolutely. And there's a role here for integrating this into um, complex trauma recovery groups. And I always do that in, in my later stage groups. Once we've, uh, even, in, even in early stage where you're talking about self-care. And so I think there's a way to creatively do that that give people tools for self-care. Well, you're, you're so inspiring. The things you're talking about are just like, I'm so fired up and I really appreciate it. Now, before we finish up, will you tell us how people can work with you and where we can find more about what you're doing? Well, thank you. Um, I, uh, live full time in Mexico. I travel and teach uh, for PESI. I teach two different courses, one on this subject and one on multicultural diversity. So clinicians who want to train in this topic can either attend an on-site training um, or uh, purchase a 
a DVD of the training, uh, and and you can access my schedule through uh, my page, my events page on drlesliecorn.com. And if you go to that page, you can always reach me via email there. And um, I currently I I see most of my clients uh, in Mexico, but. What I also enjoy doing and do a fair amount of is both supervision, but also mentored guidance for clinicians who are stepping into this area and working with their own clients and support them to do that. And so I'll often meet with either the clinician or as a consultation or the clinician and the client and develop an analysis and a plan uh, and use that to educate the clinician and the client as we go along. Uh, so those are the two main ways that people can uh, go the next step with me if they're interested. Wonderful. And because I'm sure some people are going to be listening to this and saying, well, I'd love to implement something like this into my practice, and it's it's within my scope, but... I have no idea where to start or I wouldn't know, you know, if I was doing it correctly. So just being able to consult is really valuable. Um, and your book, the newest one is Nutrition Essentials for Mental Health, a complete guide to the food mood connection. Where can people find that? Uh, this was published by Norton and people can contact Norton directly, uh, but it's also available on Amazon. Uh, easily, uh, along with my other book, Rhythms of Recovery, Trauma, Nature, and the Body, which was published by Rutledge, available through their website or um, through Amazon as well. As a matter of fact, all of my books are available through uh, Amazon, and we are coming out at the beginning of next year with a book that has been called from this clinical book that's designed to actually give to your client that takes out a lot of the clinical work that a client doesn't need to read about that isn't relevant to them and keeps it very simple so that it'll be the next step for the client that'll be out with Norton uh, beginning of next year great we'll look for that and I know I'm buying the rhythms of recovery book next to put on my reading list I can't wait to read up on that one Leslie, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Laura, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed our time together, and I look forward to our next connection. Me too. Oh, my gosh. Did you love that as much as I did? Oh, what a conversation. I love Dr. Leslie Korn's clear, concise way of explaining her work and helping us understand how we clinicians can help our clients understand the effects of nutrition on mental health. And for people who are listening who are not clinicians but are thinking about their own health, physical and mental, I think that this was a very interesting and thought-provoking episode. I hope you'll think so too. Hi, I'm Laura Reagan, and I practice outside of Baltimore working with survivors of trauma. My particular practice is focused on working with people who have experienced childhood trauma, usually related to 
physical, sexual, or emotional abuse and neglect. I'm extremely passionate about my work, and you've probably heard me talk about it on my podcast, Therapy Chat. Over the now 14 years that I've been working with survivors of trauma, starting in 2002 when I was a volunteer with the Sexual Assault Crisis Center, I've come to discover that this is extremely rewarding work. It's so valuable and important. And at the same time, I say this to clients all the time, trauma is disconnection. What that means to me is when you've experienced trauma, it affects you. And we as therapists who work with survivors of trauma are also affected by hearing traumatic stories. We're witnessing with our clients what they've been through. And it is a beautiful, sacred privilege to be able to witness people's most terrifying and horrifying moments of their lives as told in therapy sessions. It's something I want to continue to do for the next 40 years. At the same time, for my clients, trauma is disconnection. They feel disconnected from themselves. They feel disconnected in their relationships. And our work together helps them get connected back with themselves so they can be more connected in relationships. We trauma therapists can often feel the same way. We become disconnected from ourselves. That means we're not taking care of ourselves the way we need to so we can be well and continue to do our work for years to come, not to mention just having a wonderful, fulfilling, meaningful life filled with rich, loving, deep relationships. Oftentimes, trauma therapists find that we feel isolated. We don't feel connected with our coworkers, our supervisors. Sometimes the only people we feel connected with are our clients. So realizing that and having experienced it myself off and on throughout the 14 years I've done this work, I decided to create a trauma therapist community. I did this because I realized it was something that I was looking for. And it's kind of hard to explain what it is because it's different from anything else I've seen. I hope maybe that it isn't the only group like this, but it's the only one I know of. So the trauma therapist community is groups online and in person. In-person groups are for people who can travel to my office in Savannah Park, Maryland. And online groups are for people anywhere. I'm calling them clinical consultation groups, and they are. But the focus of these groups is the effects of doing this work on us as therapists identifying the effects, preventing the effects, using strategies, supporting one another to overcome the effects of secondary traumatic stress or exposure to trauma through our work because we're trying to prevent burnout. So this community includes a private secret Facebook group only for members. It's time limited so we can have a container This will be a community where we can gather on Facebook and we have space for clinical consultation. So I want to make it a space where everyone feels their needs are being met. We're supporting one another. You may be listening to this and thinking, is this for me? You might feel discouraged, but you're still hopeful. You're open to being creative and considering new ideas. You're passionate about helping your clients. You may not be the greatest at taking care of yourself and you want to get better at that. You like to learn, 
You love talking about our work. You want a space where you can share clinical information, but the main thing you need is community. If this sounds like you, please visit www.lauraregan.lcswc.com slash join or go to that website and click on Trauma Therapist Community. I welcome you and I would love to have you there. Thank you for listening to the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, visit Laura's website at www.lcswc.com. Laura Reagan, LCSWC.com.